Years ago, when my children attended Delaware County Christian School, the drama department put on uh, a popular uh, musical called Fiddler on the Roof. I mentioned this before. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing musical, and it's a, it's a story about a poor Jewish man by the name of Tevia and his family. Tevia was a poor Jewish milkman living in Russia in the year 1905. And during the course of the musical, Tevia was delivering milk, and he's pulling the cart by himself because his horse was lame. And he began to have a conversation with God, and he asks God, whom would it hurt if I were a rich man? In the lyrics of the song, he, he continued saying, oh, oh Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame in being poor, but it's no great honor either. So what would be so terrible if I had a small fortune? Tevye's perspective in life is that being rich would solve all of his problems. This is a perspective that, that many people have, but it is not what God's word teaches. As we continue in our series, Grace on Purpose, looking at spiritual fitness, we'll be looking at perspectives on possessions. And this is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13, going through verse 21. This is found on page 1038 in the Church Bibles, 1038. And I would ask you again to please follow along as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for, your, for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. May Lord bless the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father God, we come before you, and we are so thankful that we have this opportunity to hear your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to listen to what the Holy Spirit is teaching us this morning from your word. We pray, Lord, that we not only listen but that we would have a desire to have our lives changed, that you would help us, Lord, to be obedient, and that you would be given all glory, honor, and praise. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
As we begin to look at God's word together this morning, we will see a man's preoccupation with his perceived problem. A man's preoccupation with his perceived problem. Our passage begins by stating that someone in the crowd said something to Jesus. He interrupted him. The context is very helpful for us in understanding where we're going this morning. At the, we're sort of in the middle of a, of a section. And at the beginning of chapter 12, it states that there were thousands of people gathering around to, to come and listen to Jesus teach them. It says that there were so many people that they were trampling upon one another in order to get close and listen to what God, what, to what Jesus was going to say. It's just like church. You guys are all trampling in order to come to church and hear what God is saying. And Jesus began his sermon saying, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Verse 3, it says, accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be dark, will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I said to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are, worth more, you are more valuable than sparrows. And I say to you, every one of you who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be, not, be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about what you are to say or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus is in the middle of preaching this amazing sermon, right? All these wonderful truths are coming out and then all of a sudden, this guy goes, hey, hey, Jesus, I got a problem. By the way, it was not normal for people to butt in the middle of a sermon and ask questions in the middle of a sermon back then, nor is it today. So here we have this man in the crowd. He was so preoccupied with his apparent problem. I know that there are people out there who are preoccupied with a problem. What am I going to have for lunch? Um, you know, the, are the Phillies playing today? You know, what, you guys might be preoccupied with things today. But God, this man was preoccupied. He has this problem, his apparent problem, and he interrupts Jesus preaching the message. And although the man interrupts the sermon, he, he seems respectfully addressing Jesus as teacher, likely thinking that he is a rabbi. And the, the man began to complain or, or whine about his problem with his brother. And he wanted Jesus, as this teacher, his rabbi, to solve his problem. The man said to Jesus, and it really wasn't a question of Jesus. It was kind of like telling Jesus what to do. He said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. 
It was like the rabbi's responsibility. One commentator states, according to Jewish custom, rabbis could settle legal disputes when it came to the division of property between heirs. And that would explain why the man described in our passage came to Jesus to get his share of his brother's inheritance. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says that the firstborn was to receive a double portion of family inheritance. Uh, more, more than likely, the brother who was addressing Jesus was not the firstborn and was asking for his equal share of the inheritance. I'm a secondborn, so I get it. You know, I don't know why my brother should get double. That does not seem fair, right? All of you that are not firstborns can chime in with me. It's not fair. Why? So, so the problem that this man had with his brother was that he appeared to be coveting his brother's share in the, in the inheritance. This, this man, however, believed he had a problem with really fairness and justice. A problem about fairness and justice. In his eyes, he just wanted to get what he deserved. He was interrupting Jesus as a teacher, teacher or a rabbi in order to get his apparent problem with his brother about the inheritance resolved. He was hoping that Jesus would come and be the judge and execute the justice that he believed that he deserved. He didn't really know who he was talking to, did he? What we see next in, is how Jesus responds to the man's perceived problem. and says in verse 14, but he, Jesus, said to the man... Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Interesting. As is often the case, Jesus responds by asking a question. Jesus asked the man, who appointed me judge, a judge or arbitrator of you? Kind of reminded me of the man who came up to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As was there, we have a man who actually ran up to Jesus, goes down on his knees and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So again, we see Jesus asking a question when he is often asked a question himself. The man, just like the man in our passage this morning, had no idea who Jesus really was. They both thought he was just a teacher, or at best a good teacher, a rabbi, someone who could solve his inheritance problems. They, Jesus wanted each one of these men to think about who they were talking to. Jesus was the good teacher because only Jesus could be truly good and truly God. In our passage this morning, Jesus was wanting this man to understand that he was not merely some teacher or rabbi, who had some authority to judge. He wanted this man to see that Jesus was indeed appointed as his ultimate judge. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, we read, when, when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then Jesus will say to his sheep, his people, and say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
To those who are not his people, he will say, depart from me. You are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus was stating that he would not judge this man's trivial matter about a dispute over a worldly inheritance. He was reminding him, he was trying to tell him that he will be his ultimate judge about who will inherit eternal life and who will not. This man's preoccupation with his apparent problem with his brother was, was not his real problem. The man's real problem was a problem of his heart. The man's real problem was that he did not know Jesus or put his trust in Jesus. He was more concerned about a potential inheritance in this world rather than being concerned about a true and lasting inheritance of eternal life. Then it would appear as if Jesus continued to preach his sermon. He, he was interrupted, and he, I'm back on, he's preaching. And he began to address the problem of greed. The problem of greed. And as we look at this word greed in our pew Bibles here, Bibles here, the New American Standard Bible translation that we have says greed. In other translations, it says covetousness. It's a word that breaks down into two parts in the Greek. The first part of the word means numerically more. The second part means to want or to strive after. It is properly a desire to have more things. I was demonstrating that this morning with the children. I wanted more candy. I wanted a money tree. That's wrong. It's a form of covetousness. This, this form of greed or covetousness started with Satan. As an angel wanting to be God in his greed, he wanted to have what God had in all his power and authority. He was not content with being an angel of God. And, and we see how, Jesus, how Satan used this sin to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had provided them with all that they needed. God told them that, he, that they could eat of every tree of the garden except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan, in the form of a certain tempted Adam and Eve, to not be satisfied with what they were given by God. Satan tempted them to want more, to be greedy, to covet. He tempted them to covet the tree, the fruit of the tree that God forbade them from eating. Adam and Eve gave into this sin of, of greed and coveting, and, and we as humans have struggled with this sin of greed and coveting ever since. In fact, God, in his perfect wisdom, listed do not covet as one of the Ten Commandments. I, I don't know if you thought about it, like would you have come up with coveting, not coveting as one of the ten major things? Sure, murder, adultery, lying, but coveting, I don't know. But God did. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And as we know from Scripture, that our neighbor is not just our physical next-door neighbor. It's anyone. The man in our passage this morning was coveting his brother's portion of the family inheritance. He was not satisfied with what he had been given. This man was greedy for more. Jesus declares the, 
the problem of greed in verse 15. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Jesus said, beware of greed. He uses this word, beware, several times, many times throughout the Gospels. Just a few of them, he says, um, he said, beware of the false prophets who will lie and try and deceive you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees who will try and deceive you by their false teaching. And in our passage this morning, we, we see the same warning. Beware, beware of greed, because greed is deceptive. Greed is deceptive. There was a, a movie that came out back in 1987. It was a popular movie called Wall Street. Not encouraging it necessarily, but there was an amazing uh, quote in the, in the movie starring Michael Douglas, who portrayed a character that was greedy. He was, a, he was a corporate raider in the stock market world. And in this movie, he has this famous quote in which he says, greed, for lack of a better term, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. Greed is good for every, every area of your life. This is the lie of Satan. Greed is not good. This is the lie that Satan wants us to believe. John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil Company, was the first billionaire in the United States of America and once the richest man in, on the earth. And he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And John D. Rockefeller responded to the reporter's question of how much money is enough by saying, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. But it is not just the rich who struggle with coveting and greed and sin. Because Jesus says, beware of greed and coveting because it is a temptation for all of us whether we're rich or poor or anywhere in between. He says, beware of greed. Take this warning from Jesus. He, he wants us to know how serious the danger of greed and coveting is in our lives. Jesus says, also says, guard yourselves against greed. Guard yourselves against greed. This, this word for guard that Jesus uses is the same word found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, referring to the shepherds who were out in the field guarding their flocks from the attacks of wild animals and from thieves. In, in the same way, Jesus is saying that we are to guard ourselves from against greed and coveting. We need to protect ourselves from temptations of greed and coveting. We need to ask ourselves, what are ways that we can guard ourselves against greed? We need to recognize the ways that we can be tempted by the sin of greed and coveting. We need to know those sins that so easily entangle us. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, Jesus said to his disciples to watch and pray to guard yourselves and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus tells us one of the ways that we can guard ourselves from greed is to pray. We need to pray. When you're tempted to covet, when you're tempted to be greedy, pray right there and then. We can put our trust in God to answer our prayers, to, to guard us and to protect us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God says in his word, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. That includes greed and coveting. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But when that temptation comes, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. When you are tempted with greed or coveting, we need to look for that way of escape that God is providing for you. There are many forms of greed and coveting that we need to be aware of and guarding ourselves from. Remember that, that greed is a selfish desire for something. Our, our own English word greed comes from the old English gradig or voracious, meaning a hungering for more. That could be a good thing, right? Hungering for more of God. But in this context, it's hungering for more of other things, anything but God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. We need to be warned. The love of money is certainly one of those many forms of greed, and we should certainly be guarding ourselves against it. It is said a, a person can be insatiably hungry for money, but we can also be greedy or covet Fame. We can covet possessions, as we're learning today. The man was coveting his brother's possessions. We can covet attention. Boy, I wish more people would pay attention to me. We could covet compliments, gifts, another person's time, and more. There are so many forms of greed. And God, Jesus, is telling us to beware, to guard ourselves. Greed is always self-centered and is never satisfied. Beware and guard yourselves against the many forms of greed and coveting. And after Jesus warns his hearers of the problem of greed and to guard themselves against greed, he gives a, a vivid illustration in the form of a parable. In verses 16 through 21, we see Jesus continue to preach a sermon by sharing a parable about possessions, a, a, a parable about possessions. And it is in this parable that Jesus shares perspectives on possessions. The first perspective that we see is the rich man's self-centered perspective on possessions. Starting in verse 17, we see this rich man's self-centered perspective on possessions. We see that this rich man had a self-centered perspective based on what he says and what he does. We can also see that the rich man has this self-centered perspective based on what he doesn't say and what he doesn't do as well. The, the rich man appears to be so self-centered that Jesus actually shows this man as having a conversation with himself. I mean... Look at, the, look at this. It's, it's, it's kind of humorous. It would, it would seem as either, either he didn't have any family or friends or if he chose to completely ignore his family and friends. And in verse 17, he, he begins reasoning with himself and he begins asking himself questions. Well, perhaps if he asked questions of godly people for counsel, he might have done something different. But Jesus only shows us this rich man acting in a very selfish and self-centered way. Jesus begins this parable stating that the land of a rich man was very productive. It doesn't say that the rich man was productive 
Yet this is the self-centered perspective of this man. Our, our passage says that this man had plenty of possessions. Look in verse 19. The man says, I will say to my soul, soul? And he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. The man believed that he had plenty of possessions. He believed that all that he had was his, like I was talking about the money again with the kids. He believed that he had all this and he could do whatever he wanted with his possessions. This rich man was so prideful, claiming to have made himself rich with these many possessions. And so we see that this rich man was selfish by what he says. It was all about him and what he did to make himself rich. And yet we see in this parable that the rich man also had a, another problem, another perceived problem. The rich man's perceived problem was that he had so many crops, so many goods, so much grain that he had no place to store it. This rich man's perceived problem was that he didn't have enough space to store all the stuff that he had. He thought he had a problem of storage. I started thinking about that. I started thinking about our nation and all those storage units. You drive by these things all the time. And, and uh, I began to think about the self-storage units that people rent every month to store all of their extra stuff that they don't know what to do with. According to statistics in an article on storage units, it says that one in 11 persons pays an average of $91.14 per month to, to, to use in self-storage, finding a place for the material overflow of the American dream. According to Sparefoot, a company that tracks the self-storage industry, the United States boasts more than 50,000 facilities, not just units, facilities, and roughly 2.3 billion square feet of rentable space. In other words, the volume of self-storage units in this country alone could fill the Hoover Dam with all those, all that old clothing and skis and keepsakes that you don't care about more than 26 times. Can you imagine filling up the Hoover Dam that much with all of this stuff that nobody cares about? This rich nation that we live in is so obsessed with hoarding stuff. I realize some people use those for good purposes, so I can knock for people do it. Don't say it's a bad thing to rent space there. But, uh, but this is a picture of what Jesus is, is describing to us in this parable. This, this man had so much stuff that he does not have any room to store his possessions. So what does he do? In verse 18, the man answers his own question by saying, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grains and goods. Look at the language that this rich man uses. This, this man is very possessive of everything that he has. He says, my crops. These are my crops. These are my barns. He says, this is my grain. This is my, these are my goods. He's speaking like a very possessive and selfish toddler, right? Mine. Mine. <laughs> Yet guess what? As adults, we do the same thing. How often do we have this perspective on our possessions? This rich man's self-centered perspective also has him believing that he will have plenty of time to party. After solving his perceived storage problem, all of his possessions, he says in verse 19, he says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. 
take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man's self-centered perspective believes that he has so much stuff that he can just sit back and relax and eat and drink and be merry. His self-centered perspective is that this is all that there is to life. It is a perspective of uh, perhaps working hard so you can play hard. It is a foolish perspective of having no acknowledgement of God in his life. No acknowledgement of God being the one who gave him life. He is living with no acknowledgement of God as the one who has provided him with all of these things that he has. This is the argument kind of made by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15, saying about those who believe there is no resurrection, that they might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. Paul says if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and, and our faith is in vain, and we are still in our sins. So we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. But we as Christians know that Christ has indeed been risen from the dead and that we have placed our faith and trust in him. All of our sins have been forgiven. And it's more than eating and drinking and being merry because life is much more than that. We see this from God's perfect perspective. We're able to see this from God's perfect perspective. Going back to verse 16 where Jesus said, the land of a rich man was very productive. Jesus was showing us that God is the one who made the land productive. God is the one who created this man. God is the one who enabled the man to learn how to farm and to grow crops. This rich man's life was not his own. God was the one who gave him life. God was the one who provided the sun and the rain and the seeds. God is the one who allowed those crops to grow and to thrive. God is the one who possesses all things. And we see this in the scriptures in Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold the Lord your God, the long heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 24, verse 1, we read, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. This rich man was living his life as though God didn't exist. And he just merely owned everything and possessed everything. Yet, even this man, however, acknowledges that he has a soul. And Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. This man was living as though he, had, he would live forever and that no one would, he would not have to give his account of his life to anyone. This, this rich man did not acknowledge God as the owner of all things or the one who provided all. God's word tells us in Psalm 139 that God is the one who, who fearfully and wonderfully creates each one of us. It is also declares that our days are ordained by God, whether our days are short or whether they are long. And yet this man was living his life as though there was no God. In response to these words, actions and beliefs of this rich man, it says in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. 
God says to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? The reason that God declared this man to be a fool is because of what Psalm 14 verse 1 says. It says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. This rich man was living his life as though there was no God. And, and though his, this man lived his life never acknowledging the one true God, he will be held accountable and be judged by Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, it speaks of those who are fools, those who will not be putting their trust in Christ. It says, it speaks of the foolish person who does not acknowledge or put his trust in God. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This rich man thought he was so wise. And yet this rich man was a fool because he did not believe and put his trust in God. As we look at God's word this morning, we can see the point or main points of the parable. The, the points of the parable are clearly taught by Jesus in verse 15 and verse 21. The first point that Jesus made is in the second part of verse 15, where he says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Again, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, life does not consist of our possessions. God is the one who possesses all things. He has given us these things in this life, and we are merely his stewards. We are given these things to be used for his glory. We are called to use all that we have to be given for him, by him, for his purposes and for his glory. God wants us to live our lives with gratitude for what he has given to us. We are called to be content with what God has given to us. We're called to be generous with what God has given to us. Another point that Jesus makes in our passage is found in verse 21 where he says, storing up treasure for ourselves is not being rich towards God. This rich man was merely trying to store up treasures for himself. Jesus continued on uh, preaching this message to his disciples in verse 22 saying, therefore, so with respect to what he just said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body and what you will put on. For life is more important than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. See the connection there? They weren't looking for building more barns. <laughs> and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And he concludes this section in verse 34, saying, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A question that we need our, 
need to ask ourselves is, where is your treasure? Where is our treasure? If we have gratitude in our hearts for what God has given to us, then there's no room for greed. Isn't that wonderful? If we have gratitude in our hearts for what God has given to us, there is no room for greed. If we are good stewards with what God has given to us and are generous, then there is no room for coveting. For good stewards with God, but with what God has given to us, and we are generous, then there is no room for coveting. Remember that God is the one who has been so generous to us. He sent Jesus into this world to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserve. <clears throat> the sin of our greediness, the sin of our covetous hearts. And he has graciously paid that price so that we can have an inheritance that will never fade or perish. That inheritance of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you, Lord God, for people who interrupted Jesus' sermon so that we can learn more about what you say about possessions and life and greed and generosity. Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us in giving us Jesus, God the Son, as our Savior, the one who bled and died at Calvary, the one who rose again so that we might have life and life eternal. I pray, Lord, that we might respond with gratitude for what you have given to us, Lord. Help us to respond not only with gratitude, but with a generous heart. And I pray, Lord, that our, our treasure that we have, that we are striving after, would be a, a treasure that you are giving glory for, a treasure that will last. Lord, we thank you for the inheritance of eternal life as we put our trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.